Welcome back to the Music History Project. Today we're on episode three of four, celebrating the 50th anniversary of hip hop. And today we're going to focus on our West Coast DJs. And once again, we're thrilled that Kendrick Dial made the long um, ride back to join us for this episode. Welcome to the Music History Project. We are your hosts. I'm Dan Del Fiorentino. I'm Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And I'm Alex Rosner. All of the content of our podcast is based on the Oral History Collection, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. This collection is over 5,000 interviews and growing. To learn more, check it out on nam.org library. Hey, hey, welcome back, everybody, to another exciting episode of the Music History Project as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. Today, we're moving to the West. The West Coast DJs are in full force today, and we're going to talk about some of them today and how that sound developed and changed hip-hop as it continued to grow. And we're joined by our very special guest, Kendrick Dial. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me back. So who did we get to dive in first this time? First of all, I would like to hear a little bit more about your band, if oh, you yeah. would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so my band is The Lyrical Groove. Um, like I said, we've been been around for a while, probably about 10, 12 years now. Uh, we, we did a, a previous project called Spoken Soul uh, that released back in like 2015. We, we had an EP that we did in like 2011. So it's also been very much a growing thing and kind of like, you know, in, in the space of hip hop, like we've been growing and the music that we've been making, the sound is matured, you know, all these different elements. And so um, I think one of the things that I appreciate about the, the guests we've talked about, when we talk about the love of hip hop, like, especially in these early years, as it was developing, people weren't feeling hip hop like that. Mm. And so for you to continuously do something that you know that the world is against, like the love that you must have in your spirit, like, cause many of them didn't know they was going to get paid, they were going to eat, or, you know, it wasn't a thing where they were being provided for necessarily, but they continued with it. So um, I, th- I think for me, that's been a part of my space with it in terms of just the love of being able to create the music and the type of music that I feel that, that feeds, you know, my spirit and hopefully others. And so th- I'm excited to, to kind of get it out there. So, yeah, look out for the lyrical groove. Right on. Let's uh, start with uh, one of our dear friends here in the Resource Center of the NAM Oral History Program, and that is Chris the Glove, who is probably well known to most people uh, as a producer of gangster rap that came a little bit later on than the segment that we're going to use today, which is Chris as a DJ. Thoughts about Chris, you guys? Uh, Yes. The introduction I had uh, to Chris the Glove was a Zoom meeting, and we were all sitting in our offices, and he was in the pool. <laughs> he was lounging in the pool and had a great time. <laughs> yeah, Chris knows how to live. Suzanne? Uh, actually, that was my first thought, thinking of Chris as well. And in person, he's very tall. Yeah, you can see him coming, which yes. is great. And w- Alex experienced this as I did. Um, seeing Chris on the NAM show floor was just really eye-opening. I mean, I admire this guy. He's been helping us. But when people come like Flash and some of the other guys, I, I, I was trying to think who else we saw there. Um, oh, Qbert, 
just coming up, giving him a big hug. You know, here's the OG right here. You know, I think that's so great that he has such a positive reputation of helping mentoring people and guiding people in their early part of their career. Uh, I, I think that's fascinating and it's wonderful to see. When I was at the NAMM show, I heard a conversation between uh, uh, Grandmaster Flash and uh, Chris the Glove, and uh, uh, Grandmaster Flash was basically crediting Chris the Glove for bringing hip-hop into the stadiums. On the East Coast, it was more big parties, maybe, but he took it to another level. So let's begin our episode with Chris the Glove. My name is Chris the Glove Taylor. I'm a DJ, and uh, the first time I played records in front of anyone was at a club, excuse me, it was at a picnic for the Capri Club. And that's, shout out to DJ Red. She brought me up on the tables, you know, I told him I was a dope DJ. Nobody knew what that was. <laughs> he was rocking his party, you know, it was an outdoor picnic, he was playing the records, and I got out on them tables and started playing my rendition of Grandmaster Flash and the Wheels of Steel and his adventures. And everybody was staring at me. Like this thing they do now with the cameras, they've been doing that ever since I started DJing. It's weird. You know, I feel like my biggest contribution to hip hop as a DJ, I'm beginning to get a lot of uh, feedback on a song called Reckless that I did with Ice-T, right? I mean, I never knew this, but people have been telling me over the past five years, really. They grew up to my song, they listened to it, they pop locked to it, they only danced to it. And I was like, you mean Planet Rock, right? No, Reckless, bro, you was our soundtrack. These are guys that are all platinum artists, you know, 10, 15 years younger than me telling me this. And I'm like, really? I never knew because LA Radio didn't really grab our record. It was in the streets, because I was in the streets, and all my boys, you know, Aladdin, Arabia Prince, Egyptian Lover, Bobcat, they playing the record. I'm not knowing I'm on in the streets, because I got these DJs. So I feel like my biggest contribution to hip-hop as a DJ was <laughs> my performance on Reckless. Every time I meet someone, they, they do my scratches. So yes, that was it. Sorry, hip-hop, that's all I got. <laughs> I came from two places. We, hip hop did a dual thing here in Los Angeles. There was the Compton music, which is what we called it because we couldn't even play it. And there was everything else. There were cities in between. And that's how our music came kind of through hoods and cities. It didn't just say, hey, we all LA. It was like, you know, Rolling 60 Crip or 21 Crip in Long Beach or Bloods from Inglewood and Queen Street. You know, it's like Bloods from the Plymouth Rock. It's, you gotta, be from somewhere. So these DJs are similar. I got Sidney Thompson, who was a DJ who gave me a job. Great DJ still working. Solid dude, like AC Green. You would never see him on all those. He got five rings too, but you don't know who AC Green is. I saw a picture of him the other day. I was like, well, who's that? <laughs> me. So you got uh, General Lee, DJ Gus, and then the obviouses. Egyptian lover. Roger Clayton was a DJ, okay? He was a selector. He couldn't blend or scratch or keep nothing on beat, but he could play some records. Then you got uh, Bobcat, Battlecat. These guys, 
Um, I got a buddy that I've been hanging with, Ice, bad DJ, very artful, 45-year-old white man, very skilled. He runs the delicious vinyl thing. Um, DJ Kid Fresh, I've learned now. I got a young protege, bad. These kind of people build up the West Coast thing because people don't seem to understand. When they say West Coast music, they're always talking about Los Angeles. I got started in the music part of it as a composer. I made music for breaking two scenes. Those are the first pieces of music I ever made in my life. When I made those two scenes, record company, uh, the movie company's like, we love them, we love them, it's authentic, it sounds like it, blah, blah, blah. So in the 99th hour, they say, can you make a rap record out of one of these? I was like, sure. So I took the one that had the best battle, made it into a, me and Dave Stores, who created that with me, we made this into a thing. I call Ice, hey, can you rap on this? I'll give you this. Yeah, i do it. We never did. We weren't DJ and MC. We worked at the club together. I was the music and he was the master ceremony. So I was, he wasn't, I wasn't his DJ. He wasn't my rapper, but if I was his DJ, he was my rapper. I mean, I'm the artist on the record. Okay, so I got a production side of me too, but like I did things, like I was in video with Shaka Khan, I Feel For You. I've worked with uh, Quincy Jones, scratching on things for Patti LaBelle. I mean, I'm sorry, Patti Austin and a few others. I met a gentleman named Low Silas Jr., rest in peace, is the guy who really brought me into a lot of scratching. When he heard Reckless, I started scratching on everybody's records. And then it was a guy, his name was Benny Medina. I don't know if you ever heard of Benny Medina. But he had a group called the Motor City Crew, him and Kerry Gordy. So I was their DJ. And I did all the cuts and scratch, and they tried to make it crack. They did what they did. They did Rockwell later on or whatever. But I worked with them. And then, uh, But as a producer, excuse me, as a producer, I've worked with all of the... I was with Death Row and Ruthless, so I produced or worked with Easy E, Dr. Dre, all of Ren and all of those guys. And then uh, I got a song I produced on NWA's album, includes Ice Cube. Um, I worked with uh, California Love, I did with Tupac and Dr. Dre, play keyboards. I've worked on, uh, I produced with Dre on Doggy Style, so that's Snoop and the whole thing. I actually played all the instruments on Doggy Dog World. Um, also, some of my tracks, Explosive, was on the 2001, which brings in Corrupt. Corrupt is actually wrapped on every track I've produced that's been commercially released with the West Coast like that. Anything on Death Row, I believe Corrupt is on all of them. Stranded on Death Row, Doggy Dog World, What's My Name is, What's My Name, I'm doing actual, that vocoder that's in the beginning of What's My Name with Snoop, his first single, that's me. A lot of people don't know that. So, you know. Um, and then there was George Michael. I, I've uh, mixed a lot of things for a lot of people that you wouldn't expect. Um, I play the Hammond organ. You know, I'm a organist, actually. I mean, I got chops. I just got to get another organ and really get out. But yeah, um, you know, uh, work with um, Don Robinson from In Vogue. I've worked with, uh, right now, I'm doing work with Ava DuVernay and Big Tank over here with my music and television career. 
and she's about to get some kind of major award. You know, I turned that into film composing, and now I'm teaching that at Academic Speed Lab, film and television composing in the music business. So, you know, it's a lot going on, but it's a lot that's not going on yet, too. <laughs> when I was at the NAMM show, I heard a conversation between uh, uh, Grandmaster Flash and uh, Chris the Glove, and... Uh, Uh, Grandmaster Flash was basically crediting Chris the Glove for bringing hip-hop into the stadiums. On the East Coast, it was more big parties, maybe, but he took it to another level. Yeah, no, that's a, absolutely the true thing. I think part of what makes the West Coast sound of hip-hop is not just the sound. It was the accessibility of it. You know, it wasn't, you didn't have to go to that one park in the Bronx to hear that DJ. In Los Angeles, DJ Tony G was on the airwaves. He was over radio and, um, and at a very high level. Because he knew it was live and lots of people were listening, he practiced and he practiced and he practiced and he practiced. And as a result, he became a major influence because he was so good. He was so skilled. People were like, wow, I, I want to do that. And you're right, Krista Glove, he introduced it to larger audiences at bigger venues. And um, Chopmaster Jay, who we're going to hear from, opened up the doors a little bit further north, up into the Bay Area, San Francisco and Oakland and Berkeley, uh, spinning and new audiences. You know, that development was really very interesting as it grew uh, in the state of California in particular, but then it quickly spread to the rest of the West Coast. And I think that that's a very important element to make. So it's interesting as, as you talk about, you know, this in the sound coming to the West, right? And I think one of the dynamics of social media and today is that we don't always hear the distinction in the sound, right? But, you know, when you think about West Coast, like there's a very distinct sound that's for the West Coast, but then you go up to the Bay Area versus being in Southern California and whatnot. So um, I think that's one of the dynamics of, of hip hop that is so rich is the fact that depending on what region that you are, like there's your own flavor, right? When you get to the Midwest, when you get to the South, uh, those are different dynamics that we can see. So it's, it's interesting to see how the musical influences that are even present before hip hop, you know, the, the funk. When you mm -hmm. think about hip hop, you mm -hmm. think about the funk, the influence and whatnot. Mm -hmm. It's so very um uh, very present. So I think that's one of the things I just really appreciate around how um, the nuances of hip hop in different regions is, is represented. Yeah, no doubt. And I think in the early days uh, of hip hop, there were recordings of breaks available on the East Coast that were not available on the West Coast. So without that, how are you going to do it? You know, you, you need the breaks. So there is their own development. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, the the beat jugglers in Long Beach, you know, they're creating their own thing now because they didn't have access to the same materials. Amazing and very interesting and very innovative. So I'm very excited about this episode. Let's continue. Should we hear from Tony G? In the West Coast, the hip hop, this is just my opinion. The element of hip hop was totally different, of course, for the MCs because there weren't breaks to rap off of. We had to rap off of the instrumentals of rap records that were replayed of the breaks. Drum machine versions. Or live bass players that came in and played over drum machines for these modern 80s rap records. 
yes, there were brick records and there were other, you know, these soul records that they sampled or replayed. Because it wasn't so much sampling, but it was more replayed. And then that would be our break to use that instrumental. Nobody played a break like in the East Coast. You played the breaks and the MC rapped. MCs didn't have that luxury out here. None had the luxury at all, period. So it was a, there's a big difference. You know what I mean? There's a cultural difference. Yes, the West Coast, hip-hop, gangster rap all day. Hip-hop, yes, because we did it. We played it for them. But the essence of hip-hop, the break of it, you couldn't get the records. And MCs couldn't rap over it. And DJs weren't talented enough to keep bringing the record back onto the break without getting confused where it was because maybe two DJs needle dropped here. And in my era, me, there was none because you didn't have that luxury. There was no way to do it. None. Until they came out with uh, break records. Then, voila, LA becomes this big hip-hop thing now because you can buy the whole collection of breaks. Not a whole. Back then it was like volume one through seven or something. Now we have breaks. Now everybody could get a hold of breaks. Now we could sample. A la Straight Outta Compton. That whole album was because that summer, Dre and I, Yella, we were all in a music seminar. We are walking into Music Factory at the same time. And guess what we're walking out with? Every single volume of all the breaks. And three months later, the whole album, I think it was like 29 samples in there that they know of, probably 120 total. Dre went sample crazy because he was able to sample a break because you couldn't get the records. We knew the songs. We'd hear them or we had the, the record, but DJing-wise, we couldn't do that. Our MCs didn't have that privilege. They did not have that privilege. When Kid Frost and I would rock a party and I would do an instrumental back and forth and he would MC, the place would be in awe because in L.A. you played an instrumental that MC rapped and you scratched with the other hand whatever hand you were good at. That's what all the LA DJs did. It took a couple of years for DJs out here to know that you had to bring the instrumental back and play a break or the break of an instrumental. And we were privileged because Frost was a great MC. He had traveled all over the world in the military with his father, so he knew about hip hop and been in the East Coast. And we had a good team. My first hit records was with him, him and Mello, because they had the concept of it. And in my home, we practiced. And everybody that came over would practice. Like that. I got lucky. I mean, you know, on those things, it's luck, too. Good or not, you have to have luck. You know, you have to have the right tools or fall in the right spot to be able to have. I'm sure any other DJ, a good one, would have had the privilege that I had to get those stuff. They probably would have been just as good or better, you know. Who knows, you know. I doubt better because I spent a lot of time rehearsing. A lot. A really lot. That's all I cared about. I do a gig, I come home, set up and practice again, or record my tapes. Wake up in the morning, first thing I did, practice my set. I had to perfect sets. My concept was to be able to play on the radio seamlessly so they didn't know there was a DJ plan. That's all I wanted to do, that they could know. And when I did tricks, I didn't want them to know I was doing tricks. I wanted them to hear the trick, but they weren't sure how I did it. Because back then we wanted to mask everything. We didn't want to show anybody until you paid for it. You know, you had to see it. And I try to be as seamless as possible. Can you tell me about the flutter and how that came about? 
it's just going from regular quarters to 16ths to 30 seconds to 64ths to 128ths and rhythmically as the speed that I can go at 128 BPM and back then everything in LA was 122 was start the party and we ended at like 135 BPM everything was really fast so our scratching techniques were really fast so to flutter you'd be fluttering at 130 BPM 128 and the stabbings of course and the drops and the chases that's what it, the flutter was just a flutter of uh, and faster and rhythmically and on time mixed in with a terror which gives it pauses and breaks and drop in a quarter note here and half notes and drag slow drag fast drag because then the east coast they weren't they didn't do that they kept everything rolling we dragged scratches and dragged sounds to get different pitches out of the sounds and of course you know uh, mr man i believe mc shadi's dj he did a great job of doing that and mr mix also from two Live crew he he's from out here from riverside really you know so he got the la he used to listen to the radio all the time come to my clubs so he got the la fix so he can do both he can do the east coast and the west coast thing great great djs really really good really really good and that's what that that's the flutter and terrors the doubles the bonus beats with the snares instead of pop 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 and pop 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 just dropping snares as, as if you were just playing because there's only you can only do quarters with those and scratch it flash did it you'd hear him a little slower but he didn't have that much notes we added more notes i added more notes because of percussion i just imagine soloing i would play salsa records or you know muñequito records you know from cuba rhythmic uh well records and i'd act like i was the quinto trying to follow the quinto doing solos with the record and it really helped me it took me to that level being able to do it and practicing of course you know Let's go up to the Bay Area and hang out with Chopmaster Jay. I knew I had to do something different and new. Being from the Bay, it's about innovation, and we're not copycats. And uh, you know, and so I figured out I would um, create a hip hop band, and that was something that wasn't happening in 1987. And I went to a music store and met this goofy kid named Greg Jacobs who turned out to be later Humpty Hump, Shock G. And that is the way that we started and did the things that we did. And it's, it's a bit funny because I'm down here with Chris and with Hyde Street Studios. And our first recording, Shock and I, we did it, our demo, we recorded it at Hyde Street, you know, back in 87, 80, yeah, in 87. And so, you know, yeah, it was out of necessity. I was doing digital, we were doing real-time live digital automation on stage. And so, you know, um, and that's when we were doing more of a band. Our, our first gig, I was rocking an octopad, some live percussion, like some timbales and cymbals, octopad, and a sampler I'd be playing while he played some keyboards. You know, our very first gig, we, <laughs> we played a, a, a Safeway corporate party. We had no songs. 
we had, we had, we had, and I think we played What You Won't Do for Love by Bobby Caldwell about 10 times. And the shot got more drunk and said, what you want to do? It was all crazy. And I felt really bad for those people because they waited all year to have this great party. And you're supposed to be one of those groups that got on the, the shiny outfits and everybody, you know, like the Temptations. They're waiting for some entertainment. They had two guys. We looked like street performers. And we were in there. We got paid about $3,000, though. That was our first gig. <laughs> we played What You Won't Do for Bobby Cole. Bobby Cole. Rest in peace, Bobby Cole. Rest in peace, Shock G. You know, one of the things celebrating the 50th anniversary of, of, of hip-hop in the Bay Area when we were doing what we were doing, we were maybe third. There was Too Short, MC Hammer, and then us. And, you know, the thing with, with what we did was something that wasn't regionally sound, didn't sound like in any particular region. The music we did was actually rather international out the gate, and so we kind of kick some doors in and because of the kind of music we were doing, we were the first West Coast rap group to get signed by an East Coast label, which was very important back then because it, it was so, you know, it was it was so territorial, hip hop and the people from New York and you couldn't, you had to be from New York to do it and all the rest of that stuff, but uh, we broke that. Most shock is actually from Brooklyn, born in Brooklyn, but we did it out of the Bay and, you know, um, you know, it, it, it was just important to make sure that we, you know, uh, kick some ass and try to be, uh, you know, the next thing. And we had a lot of success, but success wasn't cool to have in hip-hop back then. It wasn't cool to be commercial. It wasn't cool to cross over. It wasn't cool. And like, it was cool for me. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted, you know, I, wanted, I wanted to cross over, you know, but because I wasn't from New York, I didn't understand. Like, no, I understood. I saw the trend where New York cats were using it to cross over into acting and film and television and all the rest of that. They weren't holding on to that neighborhood thing. And I didn't have it at all. I wasn't no neighborhood guy. I was a guy trying to make records, tour, and have fun. What I love about Chopmaster Jay is he's, you know, they developed this band and they wanted to have like a posse like everybody else did. You know, the crew was really important to the early days of hip hop, right? And um, they didn't have a crew. There was just the two of them. And so they all put on different hats. And I, you look at the album and there's only two people, but there's 16 names. You know, they, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they call themselves different <laughs> things to make it seem like there were more people there. That's I think great. that's where Humpty Hump They've got been, his nickname, right? right? Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they created another persona <laughs> and he was the standout star afterwards. So, yeah, really fun stuff. Next up is uh, an interview with uh, the Arabian Prince. Yeah, another pioneering on the West Coast. You know, a guy who really put beats together, found some obscure records that nobody else could get their hands on and made them his own. How I got started was kind of crazy. You know, growing up in Compton, my mom's was always way overprotective of me. So she didn't want me to like go out, hang out and do all this stuff because bad stuff could happen. So. I figured it out. I'm like, well, if I became a DJ at like 14 and a half, 15 years old, I was the first person at the party and the last one to leave. And my moms could bring me in the car with nobody laugh at me. So I started DJing like little elementary school dancers in um, Compton. And then the rest after that got into doing the skate rinks and, you know, World of Wheels and Skateland. And that's where I met Dre and Egyptian Lover and all those cats. 
Um, I think my biggest contribution to the art form would be just creativity. You know what I mean? Innovation. Because I was always a guy that was always trying to think outside the box. Like everybody was kind of doing the same stuff. And I would, you know, I wanted to be part of that. But then I was like, eh, I'm going to do me. I was always that cat that did me. You know, when I did uh, Supersonic, that was just me doing me. You know, when I did the stuff with NWA, I was doing my stuff. So, you know, I just kind of stayed true to who I was. My highlights of my career would have to be uh, one Supersonic, JJ Fast Supersonic, because I paid 400 bucks for that record. And today it's still going. You know, we just found out it's the title song for Sonic the Hedgehog movie. And it was Fur Delicious and it was Rap God. So that in itself is like, who knew? And the other one's NWA, like, who knew? We were just in the studio having fun, and it turned into this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing. So, you know, those are my accomplishments. And the fact that my third accomplishment would have to be, you know, I was always this hip-hop guy, DJ guy, but I was doing technology at the same time. So being able to balance both of those things for all these years and still to this day, as old as I am, to be able to do still the same thing I did since 16 years old i'm a knowledge guy and i'm always talking to our generation and the next generation about music and music history you know for me it's it's not what you're doing now it's understanding where it came from and understanding how how you got to where you are like if it wasn't for this you wouldn't be doing that and i'm not that old dude like yeah if it wasn't for us you'd never be making records or you'd never be DJing. no it's not about that it's just you got to have respect for your culture and your industry, where you come from. And also understand that once you get old, like all of us, you pass it on, that knowledge and information. Teach them how to, you know, the business side of making music or DJing, because that's very important. The word in perpetuity, you know what I mean? And a lot of people don't know what that word means. That means forever. You know, like if you see that word, run. Like, no one should ever own your material forever. No one should be attached to you forever. You or your creative, like, I tell everybody, you're a business. Yeah, you're McDonald's. You're, you know, Taco Bell. You're, you know, Sony. That's who you are. You're Apple. And somebody connecting themselves to you shouldn't have the right to you forever because you're the creative property. Once again, thank you all for having me. I think uh, getting being able to kind of dig in some of these nuances, and especially on the West Coast. I'm born and raised in the South, but I, I think I actually kind of got exposed to the West Coast prior to really honing in on the East Coast. So um, I was pretty happy to kind of hear some of these names and explore a little bit. So on that note, thank you for having me, and bye-bye. Thank you, Kendrick. And uh, it's a learning experience for me big time. And I really enjoy it. For sure. Yeah, such a fun episode. So much interesting stories and rich cultural history mm -hmm. and good points, Dan. And, <laughs> and Kendrick. <laughs> and Kendrick. Thank you for schlepping down here once again. I uh, hope you enjoyed. I really appreciate this team. Alex, Suzanne, you guys are really fun to hang out with. Um, I am blessed every day to uh, have a job that helps us document the history of important people and important uh, changes in music. And this is a great example of that. And how cool to have a new friend in Kendrick. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Bye-bye. 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 See you later. Thanks for listening to The Music History Project. This has been Dan Del Fiorentino, Suzanne Del Fiorentino, 
and Alex Rosner. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have ideas for future podcasts or recommendations for interviews for the Oral History Program, please send an email to library at nam.org. That's library at namm.org.